Hi, and welcome to Work Together, a podcast brought to you by Social Optic. In this podcast series, we ask experts in their field for their views, thoughts, and advice on topics ranging from technology and data science to organizational culture and psychology. Roll intro. You're joining us for our first episode of the series. On today's episode, we'll be looking at the topic of accessibility, what it is, how it impacts people, and what can be done to improve things in the digital world for any with accessibility needs. Benjamin Ellis is joined by Steve Green, Managing Director of Test Partners. With many years of accessibility and technology experience, Steve brings his unique perspective to the topic, enlightening us on the history of accessibility, diving into the detail of why modern tech can make things challenging for accessibility, and revealing some of the common mistakes and how they can be avoided with good practice. Let's dive in. So I am joined by Steve, and I am super excited to be having this conversation today. Um, Steve, introduce yourself if you can. Uh, hi, I'm Steve Green, Managing Director of Test Partners. We're an independent software testing company, and these days we specialise in accessibility testing, training, and consultancy. Brilliant. And um, we've we've worked with yourselves for a little bit, and you've definitely helped us up our game on accessibility um, by by a huge margin, which we're very grateful for. For for people who are new to accessibility, what 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 does that mean? Um, if, if someone's kind of not familiar with that term, and particularly in the context, obviously here we're talking about um, surveys and web forms predominantly, but um, so the, the digital domain. So what what does accessibility mean in that domain? Right. There's probably any number of definitions out there, but so essentially I think of it in terms of the ability of people to use a website or a mobile application, regardless of any disability or access need that they have. And that last phrase is important because not all access needs are the result of a disability. Because uh, I, I know a lot of people would think accessibility, disability, but there's more to it than that. Uh, a, a lot of people who have access needs wouldn't regard themselves as being disabled at all. Uh, so, for instance, most dyslexic people don't think of themselves as having a disability. If, insofar as they think of it at all, they see themselves as just having a different type of ability and indeed uh, many of them perceive that they have an advantage over uh, people who are not dyslexic because they think um, perhaps more creatively or differently obviously people like Richard Branson being one of the examples of that uh, also uh, anyone can find themselves temporarily disabled so, for instance, if you're using a touchscreen device outside in the sunlight, uh, you'll probably need a higher colour contrast level to read it than you would do indoors, even though there's nothing wrong with your eyesight. Uh, something that's readable inside is less readable outside. And, uh, and then, of course, there will be uh, situations where perhaps uh, you've got some sort of injury or something and can't use a mouse, so perhaps you're having to use a keyboard to navigate. Um, again, you wouldn't think of yourself as disabled, but you have a temporary access need. So that is how we think of it. That is a great set of illustrations. I'm, as a dyslexic myself, I resonate with that, and I know that you know, certain certain fonts and things can can render something almost unreadable uh, to me and 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 similarly um you know, i've got a got a colleague who who fell and broke uh broke one of their fingers and it's interesting how that changes you, know, you can't can't use a mouse in the same way it kind of transforms how you use things and makes you realize that uh, some things are not as easy as they they could be so and for it, there's a broad range of scenarios there. If I'm thinking about a um, digital survey, a digital web form, what what are probably the most 
common accessibility challenges that I should be thinking about? Obviously, want to think about the, the broad range, but um, what are the most common things that users are likely to encounter? Right. I'm not sure there's an answer to that one. Uh, without doubt, the noisiest user group are people with visual impairments. And so uh, there may well be a perception that they are the largest group, but that may not actually be true. Uh, so uh, certainly there are no real figures for that sort of thing. There are different issues. Um, so some of the issues will be code related and sort of under the hood uh, because assistive technologies need to hook in uh, and uh, in order to make the content accessible. And then there will be a whole load of issues relating to the visual appearance that uh, uh, affect potentially everyone. Uh, there are uh, many tools that people use to help them. Uh, so ranging from there are built-in ones, there are things in your operating system, whether you're on Windows or Mac or mobile. Uh, there are built-in screen readers, magnifiers. There's the ability perhaps to change color schemes to a high contrast scheme. So a lot of that is built in if you need it. Uh, then there are free browser extensions that perform all sorts of different functions. And then there's a whole range of products going up to very expensive professional tools with the professional screen readers and magnifiers being around the best part of a thousand pound plus annual costs. So uh, people could be using anything in that whole range. Now, Many people who are listening might have heard of screen readers and magnifiers. They're quite commonly known. But there are also uh, a lot more, especially in the education sector, uh, such as literacy tools that are aimed at people uh, largely with dyslexia or learning difficulties uh, and um, OCR applications, that's optical character recognition, um, so that... Uh, People can convert non-text content into something that's machine readable. So there's an absolutely vast range of uh, tools out there. It's quite amazing how, how the technology has transformed in the last few decades. I, I remember using it, something called a Makaton board, which was like an alternative input device, and it cost many, many thousands of pounds. Um, you know, now, a lot of websites, you, you, know, you can pick up your tablet and switch them into dark mode and get you know, an alternative or high contrast theme, like almost built in, or um, you know, Android devices and Windows will do transcription for you and, and read text out. A lot of those tools now are just kind of baked in and, and available. Um, in, in terms of that set of assistive technologies and, and, and tools there, what what are the particular ones that people should think about or be aware of? Um, because for most people, they don't realize that those tools are there, or if they've seen them, they don't realize that actually it's an assistive technology. And then what does that mean for, for what I'm building when I'm building a survey or, or a form? So if you're talking about developers, I'd say to start with, they don't really need to know about all those things. Uh, accessibility is an enormous topic and uh, they should be starting with the simpler things like following the web content accessibility guidelines. So that's a set of uh, what they call success criteria that you, if you meet them all, you, what you've built should be uh, reasonably accessible. And it's perfectly possible to follow all those uh, guidelines and the technical specifications without really understanding why that you just know that you have to mark up headings like this and mark up lists like that and put these aria attributes on these components and as long as you follow the specification it should pretty much work so I'd say the most important thing is to start learning all of that technical stuff. Then when you're happier with it, then perhaps go on and start learning about 
the most people start with a screen reader. Uh, there are some open source free ones around like NVDA. And, and by all means, start to learn about those. One of the mistakes that people, do, and I say people, developers, one of the mistakes developers make is trying to make a screen reader sound a particular way because they think that someone who uses a screen reader is going to want to hear certain things. And you shouldn't, as a general rule, design for how the screen reader behaves. You should be coding to standards. When you're really proficient at coding to standards, then you can start to take account of the actual screen reader behavior or the other, whatever the, the assistive technology is. But you need a, a lot more understanding than you would have uh, at the beginning. One of the reasons for that is um, all of the, you take screen readers, there are about what, four major ones uh, for Windows, Mac, and mobile. And they all behave differently. And so if you code to standards, they should all work properly. If you try and code so that JAWS sounds like you think it should, who knows what the other ones are going to sound like? And so you can actually make the user experience worse for a lot of the audience whilst trying to make it better for one small portion. Yeah, that's very interesting. One of the things we've talked about in, internally in, our, in building our mental frame for accessibility is, is having things work on the user's terms rather than on our terms. And, and that means letting people adapt it to what they need to do to be able to get access to the thing. Um, I, was, I was using a restaurant app recently. There was a, you know, it was a form-based thing. You could order from the table, which was a great bit of technology. Uh, unfortunately, A, they chose a really very artistic font, but for, for me, it was very difficult to read. And they disabled the pinch to zoom that you get on tablet devices. So I couldn't zoom in on the font. Um, so, so it, you know, it was a, a frustrating experience because obviously a designer in that case had said, well, we want it to look this way and work this way and taken away the ability for the users to adapt it to, to actually what they wanted to do be in this case. Yeah. Another thing to remember is, you know, the first time you use a screen reader, you will hear things that you're not expecting it to say. Uh, for instance, JAWS will say blank in between paragraphs. And I've had developers uh, writing to forums saying, how can I stop JAWS from saying blank? And uh, it's supposed to. And if you did stop it, and there are ways to stop it, and if you did, users would be very confused because it's just doing on your website what it does on every other website. So, so people will be used to how their screen reader works on all the websites they visit. So actually, you want your website to be consistent with all the others rather than trying to force a particular user experience. Yeah, so it's a very interesting point, actually, is about seeing how other people have done it as, as well. I think um, a lot of accessibility people tend to to work on their own. You have the great benefit of having a team and some you know real depth of, of expertise um, there. Oftentimes, people are trying to solve this problem on their own, and there is that thing of having a look at what best practices out there and, and what other people have done and how they've solved some of the problems. Oh, very much. And so uh, we participate in the wider accessibility community a lot. There are a number of forums like WebAIM and the IAAP, uh, which is a professional uh, accessibility organization. So although we're competing with all these other companies, we actually come together on these forums and ask questions and give answers and share ideas and share things we've found. And uh, that's absolutely invaluable. Uh, you don't want to be sort of isolating yourself on your own. Uh, the, the community is very collaborative. Uh, it's, a, it's a great community. In terms of people getting started 
Um, so that you know, thinking particularly people doing public consultations or, or doing public facing surveys. What are the most common mistakes that people make when they start to try and bake in accessibility and account for that in their designs? Right. Um, I think the the first thing is actually not so much a mistake. But most of the problems arise from the use of JavaScript frameworks uh, and the third-party plugins that go along with them. Uh, and nowadays, people would think you're weird if you built a website without using a JavaScript framework. But when we started back in sort of 2002, uh, jQuery didn't exist back then, or not in any meaningful way. And you hand-coded every single line of code. Then came along jQuery and later things like Angular, React, and a whole bunch of other frameworks. And so a lot of stuff is built in. And nowadays, anyone building a website, the first thing they do is pick a framework. And as soon as they've done that, they've baked in a whole ton of accessibility problems because all of the frameworks are horribly inaccessible. And even the ones that aren't so bad, the third-party plugins for them are terrible. And so even before you've written a line of your own code, you've already got a whole stack of problems there that you then need to strip out and fix. People who've been down that path will typically go through all the pain of fixing the framework and creating their own version of it that they then use for future projects. But first time round, there's no avoiding that pain unless you don't use a framework. The other major sort of generic thing that causes problems is developers trying to be too clever. Not really sure why they do this, but if there's like a simple way to do something like using a native HTML element and there's an insanely complicated way to do it, they will do it the insanely complicated way for whatever reason. And uh, and that always brings a whole load of accessibility uh, problems. Now, I reckon that accessibility peaked around probably 2006 so 15 16 years ago and it's got progressively worse since then and that's due to a combination of the javascript frameworks but also code just getting more and more and more complicated and developers trying to do so-called clever things for whatever reason and just year on year, the accessibility gets worse and worse. And we thought it couldn't keep getting worse, but it does. So my advice is, though, if you, if there is a simple way to do things and using native HTML elements, do it that way. And for the for the less technical members of of our audience, and the, what's going off under the hood here is oftentimes when you you pull up a, a web page and look at it in the the original kind of development of the standards, um, it was literally the text that got put on the page with some styling around it. Whereas now what tends to happen is your your browser loads up the page, it goes off and fetches megabytes of code, which then render the text onto the screen. So for a, a computer program looking at the screen rather than the user, what's there is changing all the time and it can't work out what is readable text and what's hidden and what's put off the page. Um, and so actually for, for the screen readers and assistive technologies, whilst the visual thing might look great with this sliding picture show and, and buttons coming in from the left, right, and all these beautiful things, actually it stops a lot of the accessibility tools uh, working. And, and actually, even for people not using the tools, sometimes a lot of that visual movement can be... Um, can be quite off-putting or, or make the text difficult to, to process and read. Uh, absolutely. In, in the old days, you used to be able to very easily read the source code and uh, one thing on the page would correspond to one line of code, which might be a text box or a paragraph or something. Now, that one thing on the screen might have... 50 lines of code 
that you had to read and work out what on earth is going on uh, there. And yeah, we see you mentioned things moving around. Uh, that has become much more prevalent in recent years with things like parallax scrolling, which makes me feel ill. <laughs> and I know a lot of people don't like that. Uh, and pages where as you scroll down, content seems to just fade in or slide in from the sides and, uh, uh, and everything's moving. Even when you hover over links, the underline will slide in instead of just being there. Really don't know why designers do this, because um, it all adds extra code, extra potential problems. Uh, no user ever said, I really wish all the uh, text slid in from the side instead of just being there. No one ever said that. I, it's, it's interesting as web browser technology has moved on that, that now increasingly there are settings to say actually i want high contrast i prefer low movement and and actually users having to communicate to the designers and builders of the websites and the forms it's like please please don't do these things that's <laughs> messy for me and it's an interesting continuum as well for, for us we think on the continuum through to inclusivity as well because the reality is there are people out there who may have a very old machine and an incredibly slow rural broadband connection might not even be broadband might be you know, a very uh, you know 2.5g mobile connection or something where actually the experience for those users of the some of these things could be that a page takes you know 30 40 seconds plus sometimes even minutes to load um and you know, it goes beyond the capabilities of their machine in terms of the graphics is trying trying to do, and that that literally renders it unusable. So it's something like the the doom mongers <laughs> at the moment. So t turning it around the other way. So what what would you say people are doing really well in the accessibility domain in in terms of kind of building um, surveys and forms and, and and digital things at the moment? Right. Well, obviously, you guys are doing really well. Um, because on the project that we did with you, you were able to fully conform with WCAG 2.1 AA, which uh, is pretty challenging to do. Not many people get all the way there, and you did. Um, so that was great. We've recently worked with another uh, agency who were working on behalf of, uh, I think it was the DWP, uh, and they had a, a survey, took a bit of beating into shape, but again, we got their 100% uh, WCAG um, conformant. There really aren't that many good examples, and most of the ones I can think of are government-related. And the reason for that is that certainly the newer government websites by which I mean like central government, that they're built using the GovUK design system, which uh, you can look it up online. It's open. Anyone can use it. And uh, indeed, they encourage people to steal their code because um, they've built a component library of all the most commonly used components and design patterns. And not only have they got some really smart developers there, but all of the components have been extensively tested for uh, cross-browser uh, and accessibility. So it's very safe to use any components or design patterns that you find on there. And now that's, it's been around a while, but I'm not sure how long, maybe five six years but it's obviously started off small and only the newer websites have been built with it so uh, although all government websites look the same they're not all coded the same so <laughs> the, uh, some of them are really really good for accessibility some of the older ones less so so that is really the uh, i'd say the biggest example of things done well i really struggled to think of 
anyone else that I'm probably being unfair here. I'm sure there are some good examples. And I'm reluctant to uh, sort of big up my own clients here, uh, some of whom have done some exceptional work. But uh, unfortunately, still most of the big brands out there are still not doing very well uh, for accessibility. Uh, some like, and I will mention the BBC, uh, going backwards. In Ten years ago, the BBC were at the forefront uh, among larger companies. They were doing accessibility really well. And sadly now, that, that's no longer the case. And that, so the one thing we, we, we kind of skipped over and didn't talk about is why, why should people think about accessibility? Because um, we're going to, I think you and I can take that a, a bit for a, a given, but why, you know, why, if I'm trying to go to my boss, hey, we need to kind of invest in this and skill up in this, what, what's, what's my pitch? Why is, why is accessibility something that I need to, to do if I'm engaging with the public? Yeah, so there are a number of reasons. And when we're talking to people in an advocacy role, we try and work out, like, what's their hot button? Which one are they going to respond to? So we might start by saying, depending on what your website does, uh, then having good accessibility might extend your marketing reach and maximize your sales. You might actually get some uh, return difficult to quantify but in principle if more people can use your website uh, more people are likely to buy from you if you're selling online um, so uh, so that's normally the first angle that we'd start with um, it might m minimize your support costs if you're having to take calls or emails from people who can't use your website because of accessibility issues, then making it accessible uh, potentially will reduce that support workload. Uh, then you've got uh, avoiding bad PR. So you'll never get good PR for having an accessible website, but you can certainly get bad PR for it. I remember in the early days about 20 years ago uh, i won't say which one of the no, online banks but one of the big ones were horrified to uh, find a, a quarter page article in one of the broadsheet newspapers uh, talking about how their online banking couldn't be used by people with disabilities uh, seeing something like that in the press is just horrendous for the product owner so you can uh, avoid that sort of uh, issue and in fact uh, about five years after that uh, in the law world one of the major publications there uh, decided that they all law firms should have accessible websites like accessibility is the law so law firms should be accessible and they commissioned a company not us to do an accessibility test of the top 20 law firms websites one of whom was a, a client of ours and uh, they just got a phone call saying uh, we're publishing in 24 hours you've got 24 hours to respond and these are the problems we found on your site and our client was actually possibly the biggest law firm in the world and they went into panic stations at the idea that they were going to be criticized in their own trade press so uh, so some of these are genuine issues they're not theoretical <laughs> this really happens uh, next issue corporate social responsibility here we're getting a bit negative um you know, you'd hope people would do accessibility just because it's the right thing to do, but a lot of people don't respond to that. And actually, CSR is probably the reason why, for the most part, the banks were very early adopters of accessibility. Going back 20 years ago, when almost no one was doing it, uh, the banks were. Uh, and if only because it was a tick in the CSR box. So, look, we're not big, nasty 
corporate giants we actually do touchy-feely stuff uh, for the the benefit of everybody Uh, then the very last button that we push is the legal compliance button because people rarely respond positively to that if you go up to them and say you need to make your website accessible because the law says you've got to that gets people's back up they don't like being told they've got to do something even if it's actually true. Um, so that is generally the very last thing that we do. And in terms of legal compliance, it's a bit of a confused landscape. If you're in the public sector, then it's very much the law. There is a specific public sector accessibility law that came in in 2018. And crucially, it's got teeth because the government digital service uh, pick about one and a half thousand public sector websites a year at random and test them. And if they find accessibility issues, you get a report saying you've got three months to fix it or there'll be trouble. That doesn't apply to the private sector, although it does apply to private sector suppliers of services to the public sector. So it it indirectly applies. Also in the private sector, there is and always has been the Equality Act and prior to that, the Disability Discrimination Act. And uh, although that's been around for more than 25 years now, that doesn't have teeth. No one's monitoring it. And as a result, no one really paid much attention to it. There was the occasional court case. But uh, generally, only the very, very largest companies ever got taken to court for that. So it wasn't much of a threat. Uh, There's the possibility that a, a new law will come in for the private sector, like the public sector one. But we don't know if that'll happen, because the public sector one started as EU legislation that was uh, transposed into UK law before we left the EU. And following down the tracks a few years behind is the public sector version. That will happen in the EU. We don't know. uh, Our government here may or may not choose to uh, adopt that or something similar. Yeah, and it's it's interesting on the Disability Act and that conversation's that I've had recently with employers about reasonable adjustments. Um, so again, it's certainly the case that an employee could say, well, look, I, you know, I need to use this website to, to do my job. It doesn't work with the tools that um, that I use. Can we get this sorted out, please? Um, you know, it's a, it's a reasonable request. Uh, it, it may be. And um, the thing about the Equality Act is that uh, it is all about reasonable adjustments. And a court will take into account all kinds of factors, like number of people affected, the cost of fixing the issue, the life of the the application. And uh, so only a court can tell you if you're compliant or not. Uh, So that makes it a little bit difficult for uh, any company to to know if they're compliant. the difference with the public sector uh, regulations is that that simply says that your website has got to meet a WCAG 2.1 AA. There's none of this reasonable adjustment thing. You've got to meet that. Uh, there is a disproportionate burden exemption, um, but you have to essentially put all the figures together to show that it would be disproportionately uh, costly, uh, whether financially or time-wise, um, to uh, uh, to fix things. Uh, and uh, anyone can request that assessment via an FOI request. So you can't just say, oh, it's a disproportionate burden. Uh, you can be held to account for it. Yeah. So it, zooming back up your list from the um, the compliance side has been interesting with, with our experience that actually p- 
putting the accessibility lens on, and one of the things we we do oftentimes is we'll we'll try a page or a design with um, with a screen reader, and it's interesting how many times when we pick something up, it makes us go, well, hang on, actually that the text of that is not as clear as it could be or not as concise as it could be or um, yeah, actually could, could be laid out in a different way in terms of spacing between that, that actually putting that lens on helps us build something better for everybody. Um, and for us, that that helps push up completion rates and the quality of data we get back. So it's one of those things that actually building that skill set and, and going through the learning journey means that we're building a better product for everybody, um, regardless of um, their accessibility requirements, is just making us think about, is this the best it could be in terms of how I use this when I put on different lenses in terms of, you know, maybe reading's overwhelming for me, or uh, maybe I'm using this on a really small screen, um, is, is another example is being accessible across a really broad range of devices that there is this kind of rising tide of it actually improves everything. And, and there's a lot of talk about user experience at the moment and the user experience design is exploding. Um, for us, accessibility has been a really a very concrete goal around the user experience that, that we can work to and, and put on different lenses for different users to think, how would this be for this, this person or this group of people? So a question that we get asked from time to time is, um, should we create a set of rules to follow that ensure that all surveys meet an accessibility standard? And, and we talked a little bit earlier on there, there's the technical bits of it, there's kind of the bits and bytes that happen. Um, and then there's what I would call the content bits, so the questions that people write and how they kind of lay, lay those out. So what's your, your thoughts on that? Is there is there a kind of golden set of rules or how, how do you approach baking this in almost at a policy level, as it were? Right. Well, I'm not an expert on survey uh, construction. Uh, I'd say the web content accessibility guidelines already exist. And to some extent, you don't really need to do more than that. But I'm certain there will be uh, like writing guidelines for how you write your questions. Uh, but that is way outside of uh, my expertise. And and like how people use media as well. It's like, a, I know you don't get that very often, interestingly, in surveys. There is still the whole thing of, we still see lots of things where people put kind of very rich content in there that's not necessarily um, accessible. Um, that again, should be kind of a well-known thing, but yeah, it's less so. Are there any particular tools or techniques that you'd recommend people would use either to kind of up their knowledge or, or kind of help them start to make some assessments ahead of bringing in experts to look at things? Mm. I'm tempted to say no to that. Uh, what I generally advise people to do if they want to go down the path of learning about accessibility is rather than try and go and l learn about it generically actually it because it's such an enormous topic and you can spend a lot of time learning about things that you'll never use uh, actually you're better off getting a small amount of testing done on a real product where it's going to have real benefit to you maybe only couple of days testing by uh, by a specialist company or a specialist freelancer, maybe. And then looking at all of the issues that arise from it and, uh, and in particular how they need to be addressed. Because even a very small project testing maybe you know, 10 pages, you might find that you've got 20 or 30 issues to fix across perhaps 10 different types of issues, with some of which could be visual, things like colour contrast. Uh, others could be under the hood, like semantic structure or uh, JavaScript-related things. And, um, and you will have to learn how to fix 
10 different types of issues and that will then take you on to into all the technical specifications for the different elements and aria roles and everything and that will generate plenty of stuff to study but it all has an immediate impact and um uh, and it's like a bite size thing it's easily digestible and so you can implement those changes within a couple of weeks you've now improved your website tangibly you've learned some techniques and then do the same thing again test something else learn some new techniques and that way everything you learn is relevant to what you do and it gets embedded because you're doing it whereas if you start to study stuff that you're not actually using you'll just forget it because uh, some of it's pretty esoteric uh, as for using tools you need to be careful there because uh, although you could download a screen reader or a magnifier or dragon voice recognition software or something if you start to use it without having had professional training you'll probably be using it wrongly and you'll probably come to the wrong conclusion about your website and make the wrong changes to it so if you are going to uh, use assistive technologies i recommend actually paying for professional training which might only be like half a day few hundred quid um, that's what i did when i started this way back uh, in the day because there was nothing on the web back then you couldn't read any articles about screen readers there wasn't anything uh, so i just paid professional trainers to teach me how to do it um, and then in terms of testing tools because there are some automated tools for testing website accessibility the problem with those is they can only do a small proportion of the tests that need doing so they give you a false indication that everything's okay when it isn't they also have false positives so they'll tell you something's wrong when it's not and you need experience to know when the tools are lying to you of course in, in the early days you won't have that experience so I'd be very wary of sort of trying to do things on your own before engaging with an accessibility professional. And I'm not trying to sell our services here. <laughs> You're reminding me of the three levels of mastery, which was explained to me once is know the rules, know when to break the rules, make the rules. Um, and it is interesting that quite, quite a bit of accessibility is 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 craft and art almost is that experience you know well i've got a warning about this but actually here that's not going to be a problem for users whereas this will be and again a lot of this comes back to connecting with with users and we've certainly benefited from you know, some of our bigger customers have internal um, stakeholder groups who are very good at kind of collecting together feedback and going yeah here's the challenges we've experienced in our environment because there's always interactions with the fun things that it have put on their machines and the tools that they're using um so uh, on on that, the thing that comes up from time to time is people ask, what is an accessibility statement? Because they come across this term and they're like, well, what, what's an accessibility statement? Do I need one? Uh, how, how do I get it? So what, for people who are new to, to that, what, what's an accessibility statement? Where, where is that kind of applicable? Right. So uh, an accessibility statement is, uh, well, I suppose it depends on your context, really, but I'll... Uh, I'll deal with the uh, the context that in which it comes up mostly. So in most cases, it's a web page that explains how accessible your website is. Uh, it'll list the things that you can do, such as zooming the page to 400% without um, content overlapping or getting truncated. Um, and it'll list all of the known accessibility issues and the impact on you. So, uh, so you can know if you read it before you use a website, you will know what you can and can't do. If there are any, because uh, with a lot of websites that they 
might be largely accessible, but there might be specific things that are not, uh, like videos might not have uh, captions or perhaps there might be some documents attached that are not accessible. So the accessibility statement will tell you that so that as you go through the website, um, you know when you come to a document that it might not be uh, accessible to you. The accessibility statement should contain contact details in case users need help or if they want to report an accessibility issue. Uh, and ideally, it should also contain a roadmap that uh, states when you're going to fix the known issues or if you don't plan to fix any of them. Um, so you'll find accessibility statements like this on all of the public sector websites that I mentioned. It's actually a requirement of the law that came in. That, so they all have this and they all have to be updated uh, every year. Uh, there are other types of accessibility statement or to use the full term accessibility conformance statement. Uh, the, the statement that I've just described is intended for the benefit of users. It's on the website in question. Um, the other type uh, of conformance statement is known as a VPAT, which stands for Voluntary Product Accessibility Template. And, uh, and that is intended for buyers. And it contains some of the same information but uh, it contains a lot of technical stuff and that won't be on the website. Generally, that is something that a third party software supplier like uh, your company and you know, people like Microsoft and Adobe, they will have VPATs for all of their uh, products or SaaS services. And if any one is thinking of buying or subscribing to those products and services, they can call up Microsoft or whoever and say, please send me your VPAT for Microsoft Office. And it'll get emailed over or it might actually be on a website somewhere. And the idea is that it's a standardized format that a buyer can look at if he's thinking of three different products he might buy. You can put the VPAT side by side and decide which is the most accessible. Uh, so uh, that the VPAT is not intended for users. So it's, it's an entirely different purpose. So th those are essentially the two types of accessibility statement. That's super helpful. I think one of the things there is that a, a minimum takeaway is is the whole contact piece. I've been surprised a number of times. I've used something and see something really obvious that makes it hard to use. Like I would like to tell somebody, uh, and and you can't can't find a way to do that. So accessibility statements, are, if nothing else, are useful from that point of view. If this is a problem we know about, and if you spotted something different, you've got a contact point there to to get help as well. Um, and again, for us, that's one of the things about trying to make sure that users can get help when they need it if we've missed something as well, because you're not always going to get everything. That, you know, there's always unique twists of tools that you haven't come across before or a specific disability that, that perhaps impacts in a different way that you haven't considered in the design of the survey or, um, or the platform. Yeah. Oh, it's worth remembering that although almost everyone aims to meet WCAG 2.1 AA, and when you get there, you think, oh, fantastic, we've achieved full conformance. There are all of the, there are another 28 requirements at level AAA that you probably haven't met. And then there are all of the, the user needs that aren't addressed by WCAG at all <laughs> for various reasons. So although meeting AA is great, it by no means guarantees that your website or mobile app is going to be accessible to everyone. Yeah, and that that whole experience thing again for you know for us a big part of the journey is the impact on the content that people put in. So 
how you ask questions, the question types that you choose. Whilst you can be technically compliant, um, you can build something that's actually quite hard for people to use. You know, if you used a drop-down question with 100 question choices, A, that, that's probably difficult for most people, uh, but if you're using that with a screen reader, you're going to be there for 10, 15 minutes whilst it's reading through the choices and it's just not, not a pleasant experience. Whereas actually you can step back and go, well, can we break this into two or three questions or use a different question type just to make that uh, a bit more friendly? And again, everyone benefits, not just folks using screen readers. Everybody gets a better experience as a result of that process. So your team have been invaluable in terms of helping us up our expertise um, and, and you know, really, really pushing us on moving forward with accessibility. I mean, I'm very encouraged these days by, if I, if I go back, even just three, four years, um, both in the public sector and the commercial sector, it was not something people talked about. And we always kind of built it into the, the product and we'd tell people we'd done that, but nobody was interested. <laughs> now, actually, even in the last few days, actually every conversation that's come up, like, you know, is this accessible? Has, has it been tested for accessibility? How do I build surveys that are accessible? There's a much more of an appetite to actually try and build services um, and experiences that are accessible to as broad a range of, of people as possible, which is, you know, there is some hope whilst the technology might be <laughs> making it harder. Um, yeah, there, there is an increasing desire to um, to be more user centric in what people build, which is, is encouraging. Yep. Certainly, if you're a third party supplier to the public sector, then you can expect them uh, at some point to insist that your service is is uh, not just accessible, but you can show that it is. And so yeah. the 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 public sector started by sorting out their own websites, and that that's taken like three or four years. Uh, but now they are very much starting to focus on all their third party suppliers, and we've worked for quite a, a number of people in uh, your sort of situation who've suddenly been told uh, if you can't make your website WCAG conformant, we're not going to be able to use you. We'll have to get someone else's service. So uh, so it, it could well be an issue for uh, anyone in the pri private sector who supplies the public sector. Well, that's definitely something to focus the mind. Well, thank you very much for your time, Stephen. It's been absolutely brilliant to talk to you. We will include uh, links uh, for people for a lot of the things that we've mentioned here and um, also for the podcast as well. And uh, hopefully we'll speak to you uh, again sometime. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for inviting me.